take advantage of the Spectator US's special election offer. Go to spectator.us slash election offer and subscribe to get three months free access to the Spectator US website and our new app available on the Apple and Google Play stores. Make sure you're getting the very best coverage and commentary in the run-up to November 3rd. Find out more at spectator.us slash election offer. I'm greatly honoured today to be joined by Charles Lipson, who writes a lot for the Spectator's US edition and is also the Peter B. Ritzmer Professor of Political Science Emeritus at the University of Chicago, where he founded the Programme on International Politics, Economics and Security. And we're going to be talking about the Republican National Convention and, first of all, Trump's big acceptance speech, which he gave last night. To, first of all, have your sort of review of the speech, if that's possible. I thought that it was a strong speech that ran far too long. And I thought that it was a little flatter than his usual speeches uh, because he read it from a teleprompter. That said, I thought that there were a lot of strengths in the speech, beginning with the setting. There just can't be a better setting than doing it on the White House as a backdrop, the best government housing in the country. And he had a live audience, which made it quite different from the entire Democratic convention. I must say that uh, Mike Pence's speech the night before, done at Fort McHenry in the middle of Baltimore's harbor, was a very effective backdrop for a speech as well. And that too had a live audience. So I thought that overall, Trump was so eager to speak unfiltered to the country as he does with Twitter and his press conferences where the New York Times can't, or the Washington Post or the mainstream media can't spin it, uh, that he he just decided to go on far too long. And by the way, the New York Times uh, uh, front page headline, at least online, was uh, just as negative an editorial as it could be. Uh, I mean, they they don't even pretend anymore. But uh, I thought he did a number of things well, and he did some things poorly. As I said, it ran on long, and it was rather flat. And what about the content? I mean, it seemed to me he went after Biden quite directly and aggressively, and I would suggest more effectively than perhaps he and his campaign have done in the past. I mean, in the past, there was a lot of sort of sloppy Joe teasing him about being senile, And uh, it was all quite funny, but it was also politically ineffective, it seems. Whereas now they seem to have hit upon a formula, and it's one I think Trump got last night, of how to attack Biden. Would you agree? I think that's exactly right. Let me set that in the context of what I see as a strategy that they're pursuing. I think that the Republicans think that their best shot at winning is to make this a choice election. I think the Democrats think that their best chance of winning is to make it a referendum on Trump. So when he goes after Biden, he's doing something different from what the Democrats are doing when they're going after Trump. Uh, Biden is saying, I'm a nice guy. 
and uh, as a, the American audience will understand, it's uh, the Stuart Smalley presentation, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Uh, the Democrats are trying to avoid saying much about policy, and that's for a good reason. If they pitch policy, they risk alienating one of two vital audiences. Either they can persuade centrist independent type voters, center left voters, or they can persuade the Bernie Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Elizabeth Warren voters. And the more they directly appeal to one, the more they alienate the other. That's why the Democrats were so vague about anything they actually wanted to pursue. Trump, by contrast, wants to, says, okay, if you're going to be vague, I'm going to define you. And that's what he's got to do. There is a great advantage in being second with these conventions, is there not? Because, I mean, essentially the Democrats sort of serve it to Trump, and then Trump can decide how he wants to reply. I think that's exactly right. It works the same way in trial, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's nice to have the final voice. I think there was a hidden message that I want to make sure we get out because I think nobody has been talking about it. The networks, which are like school hall monitors, have been saying, oh, there was no social distancing, people didn't wear masks, blah, 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 blah. Okay, all true. And of course, they largely ignored what happened right after those people left, which was that they were surrounded as they tried to get back to their hotel by people who were right in their face, yelling at them, trying to push them. I mean, it was just disgusting. But the hidden message is this. I can get out. I can talk to people. President Trump is saying, it makes it harder and harder and harder for Joe Biden to say, I can't do that. I got to hide in my basement. Uh, He's been able to do that so far. But if Donald Trump is going to speak to a vast audience in person, if the whole Republican convention is going to be like that, if he's going to start traveling around and speaking to maybe outdoor uh, venues like this with some number of people walking through factories and so forth, the longer he does that, the more it looks like Joe Biden is refusing to do it. And that's going to raise questions. Do you think that might be why the speech was so monstrously, and I agree with you, too long? Because Trump was trying to say, I can do this for 60 minutes. Can you imagine Joe Biden doing that? Yes, there's a blues song. I'm a blues aficionado, are you? No, sadly not. (laughs) Even though some of the best blues is now British, there's a blues song called I'm a 60 Minutes Man. And uh, it's about something completely different. It's oddly enough, it's not about making a convention speech. Uh, I hadn't thought about Trump saying, I'm a 60-minute man. (laughs) (laughs) Not according to Stormy Daniels. Oddly enough, Trump never mentioned her in the entire speech. He just skipped right over that. 
he did make a very funny line about Joe Biden kissing people. I think it was the only humor in the entire space. There was very little humor. He made a mistake, I think, in not improvising a little bit. In his speeches back when human beings used to meet each other in person, he would always read a bit from the teleprompter and then he would go off. He would make little, and they didn't have to be very long. Uh, they would be references to individual people and so forth. Those were always strong points, and they enlivened the speech. He didn't do that much last night. But I'll tell you what the whole convention did. It did a really good job of something that Ronald Reagan started in a State of the Union address, which is to take all of his policies and attach them to individual people. And the most striking thing about that attachment to individual people was how much the Republicans reached out to African-American voters. And again, I think there's been a bit of a misunderstanding about that. Trump got only 8% of the African-American vote in the last election, the 2016 election. He thinks he can get more this election, and that can matter a lot in states like Michigan, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida. But it's also true that if those voters aren't enthusiastically on one side rather than the other, the turnout will be a little smaller. But the real important point, I think, besides trying to get more African-American votes, is that he has to convince Americans that he's not a bigot, that he's not, which is what the Democrats are saying about him. They say he's a racist. Everything is about him hurting black people. And he wanted to say both on a personal and a policy level, I'm not. I have black friends. I work for black people. I'm reaching out to you directly. And even on issues like law and order, which the Democrats present from a kind of leftist perspective as being, if you want order, you're anti-black. He wanted to say no. A lot of everyday people in minority communities are just like everyday people in working class white communities and elsewhere. They too want to go about their lives. They want to have their children be able to skip rope in the front yard without fear of being shot. And he did a really good job, I thought, throughout the convention, and the Republicans did. That was clearly a strategy, and I think it wasn't only a strategy to increase their percentage of black vote. I think it was a strategy to say to, to white voters, and perhaps Hispanics and Asian voters as well, that I'm not a racist like the Democrats have depicted me. And it's also doubly effective because the more you can say we're not bigots, you know, Republican voters are not bigots, the Republican Party is not bigots, the Trump Party is not bigoted, the more outraged people feel about the Black Lives Matter movement because they're saying they are rioting against something that isn't true. That is so true. And to it, I would only add one point. They're not only outraged at the Black Lives Matter movement, the most brilliantly named political movement of modern times, because to oppose the organization and the movement seems to be saying black lives don't matter. 
which nobody thinks except, you know, some white racists. But it highlights the fact that the Democrats have been unable to speak out about urban disorders. It was strikingly absent from their convention. And Don Lemon, the vacuous commentator on CNN, made what a writer in Washington some years ago, Michael Kinsley, once called a Washington gaffe when you accidentally speak the plain truth, which is actually what people like about Trump to the extent that he has uh, lots of people who do like him. They like the fact that he speaks unvarnished truth. And what Don Lemon said was the violence, arson, killings in the streets, the degradation of our urban life is beginning to show up in the polls and in the focus groups. And so we, the Democrats, have to really do something about this. Well, good Lord, do you need the polls to tell you stop the rioting? Apparently they do because in places like Portland, it's now continued for three months. And all these cities, uh, I think the largest city in America that is governed by Republicans, something like the 85th largest city in the country. So when things go bad in any American city, it's governed by a Democrat or somebody who calls himself an independent, but would caucus with Democrats and so forth. So it's a strong issue as long as the Republicans don't make it a racial issue. And that's what they avoided in the convention. You, you don't think there's an element of growing public cynicism about the way the Republicans have handled the riots and the way perhaps that Trump has sort of allowed them to fester more than perhaps he could have done, and that both sides are electioneering using quite serious violence and quite serious chaos in American cities? Yes and no. It's clear that it's being used as a wedge political issue. And surprise, surprise, you know, politicians exaggerate. Where I think being an American and knowing the American Constitution matters here, Freddie, you ignorant foreigner, is... Uh, that we have the same tradition as Britain, which is a great fear of a standing army. Why do we fear a standing army? Because we fear they could come in and take over the government, begin to rule our lives. Nobody thinks of navies as launching coups because they can't secure the streets. Well, we have a National Guard but the National Guard is controlled by each state's governor. The president cannot send troops into a city without the governor's permission unless he declares a national emergency. But for the reasons I've just stated, declaring a national emergency is a very vexed, controversial move because, of course, the People fear any president would be kind of taking over the streets. And since the Republicans have been charged with that throughout Trump's presidency, his attempt to send in troops 
would be uh, seen as a kind of internal coup. So what he kept saying was, look, we could restore order in minutes in these cities if we sent in troops. That's an exaggeration. It's not true. But they could secure a lot of buildings and all the rest. They have permission to secure a federal building, but they can't go out in the streets and things like that in Minneapolis or Portland and so forth without the governor's permission. Does, it, does that make sense to you, what I'm saying? It does. It makes perfect sense. As you suggested, Don Lemon, it might be time for Biden to start speaking out against the rioters because it's looking bad in the polls. And it seems like Biden maybe has heard that message a little bit because he gave a, a little speech yesterday or the day before yesterday, actually, in which you know he said burning down communities is not protest and those sorts of things. But even then, he felt obliged to sort of make it just a small part of a bigger message about racism. Too little, too late, right? To take a baseball analogy, he swung after the pitch was already in the catcher's mitt. And what people will notice is that he couldn't even say that sort of tepid message at the convention. He couldn't say it when riots started running out of control in Portland. And people are beginning to get scared. The riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is a relatively small city just over the Illinois border on Lake Michigan, uh, an industrial city, a lot of Hispanics in the city. And the rioting there, whether you think that the police overreacted, shot this guy seven times, why do you need to shoot anybody that many as his back is turned to you and so forth? But they burned down the city. And we know from the Martin Luther King riots in 1968 that these parts of the city don't come back. And we have video after video of store owners who have, you know, a tire store or an appliance store or a clothing store crying that their life's work has been burned up. Kenosha's part of the is about uh, an hour south of Milwaukee. It's part of the Milwaukee media market. And that's a swing state. People are going to be noticing that. And they're also noticing that if it can come there, it can come anywhere. Uh, but let me say one thing about Hispanics. We have heard almost nothing from Hispanics during the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think it's an important and interesting silence. Of course, their main political leaders who are on the left have made a kind of solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. That's to be expected. But I think there are a lot of Hispanic entrepreneurs. It's a rising community in America. It's a fairly diverse community, too. People come from different countries, and the first generation is different from the second generation, and some are legal and some are, are not, and even the legal people have relatives who are not. So it's a diverse community. But still, I think that Trump can make some real inroads there, and the silence is from that community ought to worry the uh, the Democrats. And uh, I mean, polls suggest that he is performing better than he performed in 2016. 
been about 31%, whereas he was 28%, I think. You, you'll probably know better than me. But I wonder whether that speech on Monday night, was it Raymond Alvarez, the Cuban... I realise there are strong differences between Cuban Hispanics and other Hispanics, but um, it was a very emotive speech, and I think one that, not that I know Americans really, but I imagine a lot of Americans would respond very well to. I think that's right. Although my friends in the Cuban-American community tell me that there's a big difference across generations in that community. The second and third generation are, are much less conservative than their parents who escaped from communism. So, yes, but I think the problem that all of this points to is that the Republicans are really trying to say that the Democrats are socialists, or at least that they're the closest to a socialist program that American politics has ever seen by a major party. A century ago, there were actual socialist candidates, Eugene Victor Debs, and so forth. But this program is a really redistributionist program. And what Trump is trying to say is we're about opportunity. And by the way, I think the key as you move to a more and more cognitive society, trained, skilled society, as opposed to one where if you have a strong back and good hands, you can make a decent living and pay a mortgage. The issue of school choice is actually important. It's very important in the black community. It's the biggest issue aside from criminal justice reform that the Republicans have going as they try to appeal to blacks. And it's not surprising that the Republicans played on it because the Democrats cannot move to accept that. For a while, the Democrats were at least in favor of charter schools, which are public schools, but which compete under somewhat different rules than a regular ordinary public school. They're not a voucher system school. The teachers unions have finally decided they're completely against those. And because they're completely against them, and because they're such an important part of the Democratic Party's coalition, the Democrats just cannot back them. So the Republicans see it as a useful wedge issue. Uh, we're often told that Trump's handling of COVID has been a disaster and made him very unpopular with the public. I'm not quite so sure that it's as bad as a lot of the media make out. But Trump talked about COVID a bit last night. Various speakers touched on it. It wasn't a major theme in the Republican convention the way that it was in Democratic convention. But I did wonder that Medicare in 2008, sorry, 2018, was a strong issue for the Democrats in the in the midterms. And I wonder whether COVID, COVID-19, has in a way blunted that as a tool in their arsenal. That is a very shrewd, smart point. Well, I was about to say it was surprising. <laughs> I think the fact is COVID dominates all the medical issues. And the reason it's hard to make the Democrats have a good issue on the medical issues normally, and their strongest issue is 
will they cover pre-existing conditions? And everybody who's older has a pre-existing condition, and a lot of younger people do. Trump and the Republicans were very clear in saying we would cover that. But I think what people should understand about the COVID crisis is that treatment for COVID has all been free. You can get your tests free. You'll be able to get your vaccine free or almost it free. So it hasn't been a situation. If there were hundreds or thousands of people who were not able to get treatment for this virus because they didn't have the proper insurance, then the Democrats would have a, an enormous issue to say, see, COVID illustrates our point, but they can't do that. So it, it, as you say, it kind of smothers the point. And I hadn't really thought about it, but it does at least temporarily take away that issue from them. And that, that's important. Well, just lastly, Charles, I wonder, after this convention, and I think from an hopefully objective point of view, it seems that Trump had a much better couple of weeks than Joe Biden's had, and in fact, maybe even a much better month or two. It's starting to feel like Trump is moving into favoritism. I know in the betting markets, he's now moving into favoritism. Do you think the swing may have happened too soon towards Trump now, and that he doesn't really suit being a front runner? That's an interesting point. He'll always be able to run against the media. And he's right. I mean, they're just uniformly against him, with the exception of the opinion shows on Fox. Uh, they're just against him. And he'll always run as an outsider. The striking thing about his talk was about promises kept. People should recognize that nobody votes retrospectively. They vote prospectively. And the greatest illustration is Churchill being voted out of office in 1945. I mean, he had just achieved the most remarkable event in 500 years or more, say at least since the Spanish Armada for Britain. And yet, they voted in Clement Attlee because they wanted a post-war uh, environment. And they thought they were voting for a better post-war environment by voting for Attlee. I thought that what Trump was saying was promises made, promises kept. And that's a little different. What he's saying when he's saying that is I'm an outsider. I don't do what people do in Washington, which is come in and start wanting to please the Washington Post. And here's what I'm, he started to lay out a second term agenda. And I think that he would do well to focus more and more on that, in part because voters want it, and in part because it's a weakness for the Democrats for the reason I stated earlier. The more concrete they are about what they want in the second term, the more they'll say things that either please the independents in the center or uh, the hard left in the party, and that will alienate the other group. So I expect that's what you will see. Well, Charles, we'll end it there. But um, thank you so much for coming on the Americano podcast. I do hope we'll get you on again soon. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please to podcast at spectator.co.uk 
and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. 